You are now listening to the Inner Circle Podcast Network. Good, everybody. Buenos dias. Ni hao. Konnichiwa, bitches. Welcome to Abacabu Cafe, the English language Kimagre Orange Road podcast. I am your host. My name is Jason Almy. And I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode today because we are going to be talking about television episode number 41 entitled Immobilized Madoka, Kyosuke's Mysterious Watch. This episode originally aired on January 18th of 1988, it was directed by Nakamura Koichiro. Nakamura has directed a number of episodes at this point. That's eight, including today's episode. Starting with episode six, the episode that introduced Yusaku to the world, his latent love for Kasuga. Nakamura also directed episode 12, which was a very important episode in which Ayuko packed all of her shit for nothing. She just unpacked it again after that episode. Nakamura directed episode 21, which is the episode where we were introduced to the character Kumiko for that one episode. She was a very important character. She was facing her own demise, potentially due to a surgery that she was going to be having. And she was trying to lose her virginity before potentially dying on the operating table. I don't blame her one bit. Nakamura directed episode 26, which was where Kasuga and Kazuya switch bodies for the very first time, bonk each other on the head and swap souls. Episode 30 was directed by Nakamura as well. That was the one where Kurumi falls in love with the very handsome, very dashing soccer star. Nakamura also directed episode 36, which was mostly a throwaway episode about everybody finding out that Kasuga has powers only for that to be walked back when they failed to videotape it. And it's never mentioned again. But there is an important moment about midway through the episode between Ayukawa and Kasuga in that episode and really showed a good bit of development of their relationship at that point about three quarters of the way through. Most recently, we discussed Nakamura's efforts on OVA number one, White Lovers. 
This episode was written by Shizuya Isao, who previously wrote episode 11, Don't Ring the Wedding Bell, also wrote OVA number three, I Was a Cat, I Was a Fish, which I discussed as a bonus some weeks back. Shizuya also directed episode 17, which was the one where Kasuga was teleporting back and forth between the pool and the summertime fun, the lack of responsibilities, and Ayukawa. Shizuya also wrote episode 25, which is where Kasuga hypnotizes himself for the first time, and he turns into this kind of playboy type. You get the idea of what Kasuga's subconscious conception of decisiveness is. And it was ironic because he was actually less decisive in that episode. And Shizuya has not written an episode since 25, so Shizuya is back writing this episode today after a long hiatus. And the intro to this episode starts a little trippy. It's kind of uh, fun. We see these images of clocks superimposed over what appears to be the cosmos. So immediately we're evoking concepts of space and time. There's even a Salvador Dali reference with that melty clock, the clock that looks like it's melting uh, across a corner or over a corner. And the clocks shatter and they take on odd forms. There's a clock that looks exactly like Kasuga's stopwatch from this episode that reforms from a bunch of different shards like time running in reverse. It's a bit of foreshadowing for what winds up happening at the end of the episode where he winds the watch forward instead of backward. And so we see this watch coming together as if we're watching time play in reverse, of course. It's not clear if this imagery was part of a character's dream. It's unknown whether or not this imagery was a foreboding dream on behalf of Kasuga, which would make sense that he would dream about space and time in a foreboding way if he's about to have the adventures that he's having today. But but we don't actually get any indication that this was part of uh, a dream. It seems like it's really meant to be just kind of this Twilight Zone-style opening to lay out this visual theme for the episode. And from this really kind of trippy intro, we cross-dissolve into an image of clocks and a store window, which bridges us over to our main narrative. And we see that Kasuga and Ayukua are standing in front of the clock store, and they're facing the street. They're not even looking at the clocks behind them. So they're not aware of the theme of time just yet. It's not something that they're paying attention to. If the clock is ticking on Kasuga and Ayukua at this point, they're not aware of it. And I got to say right off the bat in this episode, fuck tennis in January. Kasuga imagines Ayukua and Shikaru in these cute tennis outfits like it's not 10 degrees outside. Seriously, why is everybody wearing shorts? January is cold as fuck, y'all. This really should have been a March episode, I'm just saying. Or how about an indoor tennis court? They make those, right? Oji-san enters as a deus ex machina in the opening moments of the episode, just as Shikaru is about to be creamed by the car. There's a series of cuts as Kasuga is realizing that time has been frozen, so we get this nice use of montage here as Kasuga is looking every which way, this way and that, and nothing is moving. No one is responding to him as he calls out their names. There's uh, cuts to pans across the shop window. It shows both Kasuga's reflection as he tries to rouse Ayukawa to no avail, but it also reveals that the clocks inside the shop are not running, telling us that time has frozen in this interesting kind of double-duty shot. What's funny is that 
Oji-san didn't even stop time in order to rescue Shikaru. That's just a side benefit of him freezing time so he could cross the street. If he hadn't needed to cross the street at that moment, Shikaru would have really died. Not like fake died like we're going to see in a few more episodes, but like real died. And as Shikaru is gushing over Kasuga saving her and Obasan calling Shikaru Kasuga's bride, we cut away to what seems to be a romance-themed clock where a figurine resembling Ayukua slides across, out one door, across the clock, and into another door, looking miffled the whole way, eyes closed, chin up, looking like she's just trying to give Kasuga the cold shoulder, and she moves across the clock. And then the figurine that resembles Ayukua is pursued by a figurine that very much looks like Kasuga looking flustered. It's a visual metaphor for Ayukua and Kasuga's dynamic anytime Shikaru is being affectionate toward Kasuga. It's interesting, too, that these figurines travel in a circular trajectory around the clock. So there's a door on the left from which the Ayukua figurine emerges, travels across the clock, and enters a door on the right. The Kasuga figurine follows suit. But then we repeat. So apparently the Ayukua figurine completes its circular trajectory around the clock to re-emerge from the left door. And so they repeat their trajectories around the clock, likely in intervals, like with the hour or something like that. But it's almost like there are patterns to the various plots throughout the series. It's a parallelism, this kind of visual parallel to the patterns that have emerged as we've watched the show to this point. We've seen patterns emerge with the way that Kasuga interacts with Shikaru and Ayukua and the varying effects that that has, particularly on Ayukua. The idea of things repeating themselves, these conditions such as the principal love triangle remaining the same over the course of the series. The theme of time, the theme of history repeating itself is seen here. We've seen episodes that flow similarly. Also, with Obasan referring to Shikaru as Kasuga's bride, I'd be like, damn, Grandma. Don't put that shit on me in high school. Like, I'm still a teenager. Don't be talking about girls as my bride and we're going to get hitched. Can't be getting hitched up at 16 like it's the 1700s. Also, more and more, Ayukua does seem to be taking note of Kasuga's power. I don't think she's connected it with ESP yet. She doesn't seem to know exactly why he's able to do the incredible things that he can do, but she has noticed she makes note in this episode that sometimes he is capable of doing some really incredible things. He ignores the comment, of course. He's trying to keep that secret. But Ayukawa is the smartest character in the series. I mean, she's bound to notice these types of things. And more so than anyone else, she ought to put two and two together. Also, this episode got me feeling bad for Kasuga Takeshi. He's like totally cocked as a dad by Oji-san who calls him a normie and then freezes time. I bust that old man's ass. But it keeps with the theme of subversion of the older generation and their values. Takeshi gets humiliated in this instance because he's cautioning Oji-san to moderate his power usage. He's trying to enforce the 
ban on ESP use, and he's trying to maintain this status quo. And of course, characters like Kurumi are going to buck against that. And apparently, Oji-san's got some of that in him as well. And this episode made me wonder, is Obasan more powerful than Oji-san? She seems to be calling the shots in this early scene where she gives the watch over to Kasuga. It's almost like she's got a sixth sense. She knows that he's going to put it to some kind of use. She's cryptic about the whole thing, but she makes a comment about, wouldn't he be better off with the watch? Although, credit to Oji-san, he did try to warn everybody that Kasuga shouldn't use the watch too much in what's kind of a throwaway protest, but he does slide that important line in there, and that's a good little bit of foreshadowing to come early on in the episode because it means that at some point later in the episode, Kasuga's going to use the watch too much. And then later in the episode, Obasan is able to wield the power over Oji-san with ease as he struggles mightily to get away, and she just pulls him right back. So it made me think that maybe she's a little bit more powerful than Oji-san. Kasuga does not delay in fantasies about using the watch to impress Ayukawa. Despite deciding not to do so in episode two, when he was playing the basketball game, he thought about using the power because he saw Ayukawa was watching. He thought maybe if he did something impressive, slam dunk, he could impress her. But he decides not to because using the power to impress somebody else is false pretenses. He does put the watch to kind of a similar purpose here where he's trying to manipulate events of a sporting contest to achieve the outcome that he wants. It is befitting that his first use of the watch is to prevent Ayukawa from getting hurt falling over. He noticed that she was about to trip and fall going for a return and he froze time, he righted her, and then he immediately recognizes the watch's latent sexual assault potential. I can just freeze time and then do whatever I want to other people's genitals, right? I mean, he is 16 after all. Who's not going to think 60 seconds, a minute? That's way more time than I need. And so he does get caught trying to kiss Ayukawa in what must have been very shocking for her to experience this instantaneous movement of Kasuga across the court. One moment, one instant, he's on the other side of the net, and the next, he is uh, centimeters from your face. And I can only think that Shikaru must not have been watching, because I, I think if Shikaru was there looking when time unfroze and he was trying to kiss Ayuko, it was very, very obvious what he was trying to do. And, and it was out in the open in the middle of the tennis court. Anybody else around would have seen that, right? I guess Shikaru was in the changing room, I don't know, getting a drink, who knows. But this moment's not entirely brushed off either. I mean, Ayukawa brings it up later, all salty. She basically stays salty the rest of this episode because of the stupid kiss competition as well as this moment. Now, Oji-san was apparently simultaneously being a perv. He's taking advantage of any time the, the watch is used because he experiences the time freeze as well, of course. And this sort of establishes a parallel between him and Kasuga, that Kasuga is freezing time and he's tempted to 
do sexual things with Ayukawa, even if it's something as a relatively innocuous as a kiss, albeit uh, no consent for the kiss was given, Kasuga. Oji-san is also doing something. We, we don't see exactly what he's doing. He's doing something perverted to these young girls. I don't know if he's rubbing on them, touching their bodies, or maybe he was just trying to get a view up their skirt or whatever, but he gets busted too. And it makes you feel like all men fall somewhere along this pervert spectrum in Orange Road. Komatsu, Hata, they're definitely the worst. They're way down the line on the pervert scale, and possibly no redemption is available for them. You get the feeling like Kasuga, even though he has thoughts, he pushes them out of his mind, and he makes the right decision. It even happened in this episode. He reminded himself, he's not supposed to be freezing time to touch people's boobies. Only freeze time for altruistic reasons, like getting the ball out of Shikaru's blouse when she accidentally drops the tennis ball down her shirt. But it's like teenage boys, Kasuga to a lesser degree, Hata and Komatsu to a great degree, they're peeping toms, they're copping feels, uh, any chance they get. But old men like Oji-san are trying to cheat on their old ass wife with some young ladies that are barely older than their grandkids. So it's like all men are dogs, kind of. And the parallel is there with Oji-san also getting busted, kind of the same time as Kasuga. He got busted as well, despite his history, despite his expertise with the watch. Although, I got to say, Oji-san maneuvers very well when he's caught. It's almost like he wanted to be caught. He's like the Joker in the Dark Knight. I mean, he wanted to be caught, right? He Pulls off some magic tricks, obviously using the power. But you can tell the guy's been doing this for 50 years or longer. He uses the power to impress these girls. He busts out the flowers. He busts out the little panda stuffy. And these girls that he was, a moment ago, were screaming at the top of their lungs. They do a complete 180. They're ready to go ice skating with this guy. They're ready to have this old man's babies. Uma and Ushiko get an appearance in this episode in a cutaway as expert figure skaters. Of course, they're great at figure skating. And if you pay attention, there's a little bit of a continuity error here where their hair colors switch. So Uma's hair is brown and Ushiko's is black, like normal, as they're spinning. They're doing some kind of, I don't know what you call it, a pirouette. I don't know what it is on the ice skates. But they're they're doing a spin. Of course, their hair is the normal color that it always is in the other episodes. But then they cut away to Umao's hand as they're striking a pose and then cut back to Umao and Ushko. As they're in their pose, they're ready to accept the gold medal. You can just imagine the flowers being thrown at them. And Umao's hair is now black and hers is brown. They've swapped colors when they cut back to Umao and Ushko striking the pose. And it's really kind of jarring because it doesn't look like Uma and Ushko. It's really pretty weird. Remarkably, Uma and Ushko make a second appearance in this episode, several minutes and an eye catch after their first. This is the first time Uma and Ushko have ever appeared more than once in an episode. And Grandpa fucking breaks Ushko and Uma. He causes them to malfunction. After Oji-san is caught being pervy with Ushko, she and Umau just start screaming each other's names until they get them reversed and they start yelling their own names. They literally break down and malfunction 
all because Oji-san was doing something. I don't know if he was trying to get a look at her nipples or whatever. I don't know what he was doing, but he did something that just caused both their brains to snap. This is also the episode where I lost patience with Komatsu's contrived sexual games. I don't. Why has everything got to be sexual for Komatsu? If you win a tennis match, you have to kiss your partner, of course. Do you want to get into this Christmas party? Also, you have to kiss. Do you want to sign my yearbook? Do the sex and let me watch. It makes no sense. Why everything's got to be sexual with him. Why does, obviously, he's a perv. Obviously, sex is always on this man's brain. We've seen the inside of his room. It's at this point that Ayukawa makes it clear that she's still salty with Kasuga for trying to sneak a kiss earlier. She's also salty because Kasuga is partnered with Shikaru and she doesn't want the two of them kissing. Now here we get this really terrible scene where Shikaru goes to serve the ball and accidentally drops it down the front of her shirt. And so Kasuga, of course, has to freeze time because she couldn't get that out herself. He has to freeze time so that he can reach in. And of course, it takes a man a full 60 seconds to get the ball out of there. But it didn't make a lot of sense to me in the context of Ayukawa having to suppress her feelings for Kasuga. She can't demonstrate that she has feelings for Kasuga, especially with Shikaru there. So it doesn't really make sense that she had to like smack him with the tennis ball when she caught him copping a feel on Shikaru, because Shikaru clearly was not offended at all. She was flattered. She thought he was reaching down her shirt for sexual reasons, and she was like, damn, all right, it's like that. Shikaru was all about it. So it doesn't make sense that Ayuko would then cream Kasuga and try to knock his teeth out with the, the ball. And I don't know why he had to stop time to get the ball anyway. If somebody drops a tennis ball down the front of their shirt, they can figure it out. You know, you've dropped something down your shirt before. You you figure it out. Might be embarrassing for a moment, but it's not a big deal. You don't have to freeze time and then reach your hand down someone's shirt without their permission in order to get the thing out. You can let them handle it. Or if he did want to freeze time to get the ball out of Shikaru's blouse, then he could have immediately teleported the ball out of her blouse. We saw earlier that Kurumi used the power when time was frozen. She was levitating both Takashi as well as Jingoro. So there was really no need for Kasuga to get himself in trouble by removing the ball manually. He didn't even have that pervy moment where he's like, yes, I get to reach down Shikaru's blouse. He wasn't even thinking about her boobs at that moment. He doesn't tend to think of Shikaru in a very sexual way very often. He could have just teleported the ball out. Freeze time, teleport the ball out unfreeze time, three seconds go by. He didn't need to get himself in trouble by taking a full 60 seconds to try to fish this ball out of her shirt, and then time goes back to normal, and there you are, elbows deep in Shikaru's blouse. And of course, Ayuko was going to be pissed. This was clearly to add humor, right? I mean, it was obviously meant to be humorous. Don't think too hard about it. I just thought too hard about it. It was also to keep Ayukawa salty. We need to keep her salty, and we need to continue the brine on Ayukawa. Ayukawa is brining this episode. She's getting saltier and saltier the whole episode through till we get to the crescendo when we hit that peak. Then things can dissipate, but not until we get to the climax. 
But then her serving the ball right into his mouth, like she serves the ball right at his face and he like catches it in his mouth and it's right out of Looney Tunes. He even like falls backward and plops over after a cute little one-liner. It seems that at this point, Ayukawa has become much more open about her jealousy towards Kasuga with Shikaru. It sort of goes hand in hand with her progressively wanting to be more of a couple with Kasuga. We talked about her wanting to do that coupley shit with Kasuga on New Year's. It's becoming harder and harder for them to not behave like two people who are dating. Ayuko and Kasuga, that is. And jealousy is the flip side of the coupley coin. Unfortunately, if anything, this only makes Karu seem a little bit more vapid, unobservant, unaware of what's going on around her. She doesn't notice what's going on so openly with Ayukua expressing her jealousy toward Kasuga. It also makes her revelation in Anohi seem a little bit more like a retcon. In this episode, it doesn't seem like she's aware that Kasuga has feelings for Ayukua and that Ayukua reciprocates those feelings. Also, to continue with my vein of nitpickiness, ain't nobody going to notice he's holding a damn stopwatch while playing tennis? Like, you need two hands to properly swing a backhand. You can't do that if you're holding a stopwatch. How are you going to do a backhand? People are going to notice you're holding a stopwatch. But I loved Kurumi drawing on Hata's face during a time freeze. That's like peak Kurumi. Like, she just loves starting shit. If you freeze time, I love that the first thing she does is start levitating her family. And then she graduates to drawing on people's faces with Sharpies. Kurumi is me at 19. I love it. I also thought it was interesting in this episode that Oji-san was the one, not Obasan, but Oji-san was the one who correctly predicted Kasuga's true preference between Ayukawa and Shikaru. I don't think it's because Oji-san possesses any extra insight into Kasuga that Obasan doesn't have. I think more than anything, Oji-san is probably thinking with his wiener. Like Ayukawa is hotter and he wants to see how hot she's going to get in her 20s. So he thinks obviously Kasuga is going to prefer the hot one where Obasan seems to favor the stability and the good nature of Shikaru. Shikaru seems less mercurial, more consistently upbeat and peppy. She's Genki after all. We get an important establishing shot that brings us back to Kasuga as he implores Ayukawa to listen to him. It shows her buying hot coffee, which is going to be important in a moment. It's not just an establishing shot telling us where we are, often used between scene transitions, but it's also setting up something that's going to be important to the plot in just a moment. Now, I think Kasuga here clearly needs to grow up a little bit. Ayukawa has already said in an earlier episode that she's not about dudes who make excuses. She doesn't like men who blow smoke. And he's following Ayukua down the hall, and he's trying to explain himself. He's just making excuse after excuse, and he ought to know by now. That's not the type of behavior that she respects in a man. 
At one point, he's even following her silently. Like he's just this, like he seems like this little boy, like following his mom almost. He needs to grow up a little bit. Knowing that she hates dudes who make excuses, why is he trying to tell her a story? But when she spills coffee on Kasuga by accident, Ayukawa goes from fuck off to take your shorts off real quick. So it makes me think maybe she was playing up the jealousy angle to kind of provoke a response out of Kasuga. Because she immediately feels guilty for pouring hot coffee all over his schmack. Of course, Kasuga's an idiot and he followed Ayukawa into the girls' changing room and that's where she spills the coffee all over him. Anytime Kasuga enters a woman's locker room, he's got to get caught there, right? It wouldn't be Orange Road if people didn't come in and catch him in the woman's locker room and misunderstand or whatever, think he's trying to be a peeping Tom. He just followed Ayukua into the one place Ayukua knew she could go to get left alone by Kasuga, and he completely ignored that. But Ayukua covers for Kasuga when the stopwatch doesn't work. She explains his presence in the girl's locker room, that he's an idiot and he followed her in, and he makes a special note of her covering for him in a voiceover cutaway, one of those freeze frames with the black bars around the image. And who knew that Obasan was a perv too. Her line about enjoying the taste of a ripe woman is possibly the most disgusting combination of words I've heard all week, and yet it's still pretty funny. That's a disgusting thing to say, but it's a hilarious thing to say. In their final match, Ayukua snakes in front of Yusaku to return a ball that he had She's going to get it anyway. She's not going to let it fall to Yusaku to screw up. It shows her determination that Kasuga not kiss Shikaru. Both Ayukawa and Kasuga's entire motivation in this episode is to prevent the other person from kissing someone that's not them. So they both have the exact same motivation. Ayukawa doesn't want Kasuga kissing anyone else just as much as Kasuga doesn't want Ayukawa kissing anyone else. It's really peak Orange Road silliness. It was just a silly proposal by Komatsu that the winning couple should kiss. There's no way for him to enforce his dumb ideas. It's exceedingly unlikely that Ayukawa and Yusaku would kiss at all. They don't like each other like that. I mean, Yusaku's obviously into Kasuga. And who's going to make them kiss? It's really ridiculous of Kasuga to take this threat so seriously. Like, Ayukawa's going to smooch Yusaku. If they win, what was obviously Komatsu and Hata being pervs and trying to get an opportunity to kiss one of the twins became like a real threat for Kasuga. And he took it very seriously and became his motivation for this entire episode. The conflict for this entire episode was based around Komatsu's dumb idea. Things get interesting when Kasuga's dream reveals his subconscious knowledge that the love triangle cannot remain in place as it is forever. His dream imagery involves clocks and a nebulous red void. It's not the cosmos again like the beginning of the episode, but it's this sort of red, cloudy, it looks like a hurricane on like a Doppler radar or something like that. And he and Ayuko are dressed in these imaginary kind of Greco-Roman togas And the time motif in this episode becomes a metaphor for youth as it's presented throughout Orange Road. The way things are is okay while these characters are young, the springtime of their youth, 
but it won't last forever. Youth doesn't last forever. All of this is temporary. And as they approach the next stage in life, these characters are going to have to grow up a little bit more. Dream Ayukawa shoots arrows into the clock that's behind Casca, a giant clock that he's standing in front of that he looks like he's mounted to, crucified to, and it seems to pierce the the clock. Instead of shattering, it's like a, a balloon filled with hot air. This air starts hissing out, and Dream Kasuga is desperately trying to keep the air in the clock by covering these holes to no avail, and it works as a metaphor for his trying to cling to both women and keep things as they are. It's like he's traveling into adulthood, kicking and screaming this transition from youth to adulthood, and he's clinging to it, and he's clinging to the symbol of that. And who amongst us doesn't want more time? And Casca's hallucination makes it obvious that he can't continue to juggle both women forever. Part of growing up is going to be having to choose. His use of this magic watch to stop time is a reflection of his denial, his wanting to control things, and his wanting to hold on to the current moment, literally by pausing it, making it last longer, drawing it out for him. It was also interesting that Oji-san and Obasan describe Kasuga as Snow White, and they frame Shikaru and or Ayukawa as the princes who need to kiss him to wake him up. And it was interesting because earlier... Oji-san was shown holding a clock. Apparently, he stopped by the clock store from the beginning of the episode, and he's holding a clock with figurines on it. And the, the figures are Snow White and Prince Charming, and they're dancing on the clock. Casting Kasuga as a princess is pretty appropriate, though. I mean, that's Kasuga. But it was an interesting little bit of foreshadowing that we saw Snow White and Prince Charming on the clock that Oji-san was holding only for that to become an element of the plot, that Casca needs to be kissed in order to wake up from his weird dream. And Ayukawa does express some remorse for her treatment of Casca in this episode. So for her part, she's revealing that she's not perfect. She's a little stubborn. She's remorseful for never being honest about her feelings. And in this episode, Ayukawa got so close, centimeters away. Just like in episode 14, she's attempting to kiss an unconscious Kasuga. So it's not just the guys in this show that try to kiss people while they're unconscious. But Shikaru dashes in and gives the kiss. We cut back to Ayukua looking at first relieved that Kasuga is okay, but then bummed out a little bit. She, she looks down a little bit and seems pensive, and she's a little bummed that it wasn't her to kiss him. Again, because she was so close. And this is another episode where Kasuga's friends, specifically Shikaru and Ayukawa this time, get to experience the power firsthand. Kasuga was frozen. His heart wasn't beating. And yet, no one bats an eyelash. The secret is safe. They woke him up with a kiss. He was stiff as a board. One kiss wakes him up. That is literally fairy tale shit. And despite that experience, still nothing. We're not suspecting ESP or powers or any other weirdness at all, even though Kasuga has moved quicker than the Flash a few times in this episode and saved Shikaru's life from getting creamed by a car. And he sometimes does this really incredible, impossible stuff. 
and he was frozen stiff as a board and one kiss woke him up, but definitely nothing magical going on here. Just as with every episode, we get a final image of a photograph for that episode. But interestingly here, we see the hands of a clock appear over that final photograph and it's ticking like it's counting the seconds as if to say, tick-tock, Kosaka, the end is coming. The end of Orange Road, yeah, we're in the home stretch, but also for Kosaka, the end of this era of his life. And really at this point, all I'm left with is questions about the mechanics of this time freeze device. So I'm guessing time all around the earth freezes. When Kosaka presses the watch to pause things, things also pause for Oji-san, and that's why he's out trying to take advantage of that. I'm guessing time stops for like the whole world, but possibly the entire universe. Is this like a non-local effect? It seems like a very powerful watch if you're able to stop time, like all of time. But if it only froze time locally while time continued to move globally, that would become problematic as clocks got out of sync uh, on other hemispheres and stuff like that. People would notice that time was pausing over there in Japan. So it's really likely that this tiny little watch is able to freeze all of time, just that entire dimension, so universally frozen. And uh, I got to wonder where this watch comes from. It seems very primordial in order to be able to stop, even for a moment, such a uh, magnificent force as time. But oh well. I don't think the filmmakers intended for me to think this hard about it, so I'm going to do my very best not to. What you should do your very best to do is go on over to patreon.com slash Team Almy. You can become a patron of Team Almy Studios. You can help support us as we create this podcast and several others. You'll get bonus content. Of course, I try to produce some fun stuff that is uh, different, I guess. Uh, not just extra podcasts, but uh, live streams, video content. Um, I'm going to be making a Katsusan in just a couple of days. I'm going to try to make it look exactly like it looks in the Orange Road television series. And taste delicious, too, because it has to be good. So that type of bonus content awaits you. Much more to come please consider becoming a sponsor. Also, consider checking out our other podcast. It's called Creatures of the Night. It's just a fun, kind of kooky, very tongue-in-cheek, very silly, paranormal, aliens, Yeti, DMT, Hitler's alive in Antarctica, that kind of thing. Uh, nothing political, so don't worry about that. We have a lot of fun. Come check us out at Creatures of the Night. You need more podcasts to listen to. I know you do. So, come check us out. Also check out other podcasts in the Inner Circle Podcast Network. You can find them at innercirclepn.com. There's a ton of great stuff for you to listen to over there, so please check them out. Also, I want to thank you so much. Thank you to my patrons, but thank you so much to everybody who listened to this episode. I do appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. We are getting into the home stretch here. We are in the final several episodes, and we're going to try to make the most of it, and there are going to be many more episodes to come even after we complete episode 48 of the television series. We will have two movies to analyze, and those are going to be big episodes because those are film length, 
So those are going to be long episodes. They're probably going to take me a little extra time to produce, but we're going to do a lot of anime wrap-up. We'll have several summary episodes that are going to be specific to different themes, character analyses. So there's going to be a lot more episodes to come, even once we've finished the individual episode analyses. And then once I'm finally done talking about the anime, there's the manga, of course. We haven't talked a whole lot about Matsumoto Izumi's work because we've really been looking at someone else's work that was inspired by his work. But we're going to dig into his work once we're done talking about the anime. So please count on Abacabo Cafe, this podcast, running for the foreseeable future. I've got a lot of content left in me to produce for this, and I really appreciate everybody. I'm going to leave you with this excellent tune. It's an Earl Knight remix from some of the Orange Road background music. And I want to say thank you again, and I'll see you next week.